Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 67 of my program. Glad to be here. I just want to tell you, if you really like this podcast, before we get started, Please make sure you share it around on social media. You can also go out and like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, like my YouTube page. If you go to my homepage, brianmcclanahan.com, you can sign up for my email list and you'll get a free ebook, uh, Forgotten Founders, and also a free audiobook of that same book. So, um, read by yours truly. So, go out there and get that. And please also make sure that you uh, tell your friends about this podcast if you enjoy it. Uh, also, uh, I do want to mention, and I'm actually going to talk about the book today, in today's podcast, if you go out and you subscribe at the Basic Plus membership or Master Level membership at LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com, you get a free copy, autograph copy, of my Forgotten Conservatives in American History with Clyde Wilson. So I'm actually going to talk about a chapter in that book today. So please, if you like this particular episode... You can get the book for free. You just got to go out there and subscribe at LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, History.com. Uh, and not only do you get this book, but you get about 16 classes, college-level courses on a variety of subjects, history, philosophy, economics. It is a great online resource, and it's pennies on the dollar for what you get. I mean, you, you, would, you would pay thousands and thousands of dollars to get these classes if you signed up at a college or university. And they are all taught by university-level professors. So, for uh, I think the uh, the basic plus membership is is uh, around eighty nine bucks, uh, but you get all of those classes and you get this book, and so it's quite a deal. So think about that. Uh, if you get the master level membership, uh, it's it's a little more than that, but you get the subscription for life. Uh, you never have to uh, resign or sign up again. Uh, you know, re up your membership uh, for the for the uh, courses. So, and as new things are added, you're going to get all those new courses. Plus, you get all of Tom's Woods uh, materials for the Ron Paul Homeschool Curriculum. So that's also a deal. Uh, and then you get this book too. So I mean, how can you how can you pass that up? So go out to LearnTrue T R U E History dot com and sign up at those uh, two higher levels, and you will get a free copy, signed copy of Forgotten Conservatives in American History. Uh, signed by yours truly, but also written with Clyde Wilson. Okay, so I want to talk about uh, one of my favorite subjects, and it's actually something I, a subject I've been writing on for years. It was um, the first real uh, academic subject I focused on as an undergraduate, and, uh, and when I say real academic subject, it's, it's what I wrote my senior thesis on when I was a, a senior and as an undergraduate, and then I, I wrote my master's thesis on it, and then my Ph.D. on this similar topic, but uh, a much more narrow version of what I was doing. Um, 
earlier, and that's the subject of James A. Byard of Delaware. Now, I'm actually going to talk about the entire Byard family, and the interesting thing about the Byard family is that I would rank them as one of the greatest conservative American families in American history, right up there with the Tuckers of Virginia. Uh, I know people like to focus on the Adams of Massachusetts. Oftentimes, that particular family is, is discussed quite often. But the Byards, I think, were so much better and a better representation of real American conservatism. Um, so you can't, you know, when you look at these dynasties, these political dynasties in American history, there are a few, but nobody really knows anything about the Byards. They should. They should, because the Byards were around at some pivotal moments in American history, and they said a lot of really interesting things about American government, about American statescraft, uh, about uh, American policy from domestic to foreign policy. Uh, these men were in the highest levels of government. And uh, so I think it's important that we understand them and who they were. Now, I wrote my dissertation on James A. Byard the Younger. Uh, oftentimes, he's known as James A. Byard Jr. Uh, he was never officially called that. Uh, so you had James A. Byard, his father, and you had James A. Byard, his son, the son. And uh, James A. Byard, the father, was often known as James Ashton Byard. Um, to differentiate the two. I call them James A. Byard the Elder and James A. Byard the Younger. I, I edited the Wikipedia page on this fact uh, several years ago, and uh, the editors over there just, just had a conniption over this. And I said, look, uh, you know, I, I wrote my dissertation on this guy. Um, there's Nobody else has ever done that before. Uh, I'm probably the, the only uh, scholar that knows as much about the Byards, or I know more about the Byards than any other living scholar, and uh, I know what I'm talking about. Well, they wouldn't let it go through. Uh, so we had to stick with with uh, a junior, I think. Um, so uh, somebody was trying to, you know, have it the second or the third or some some nonsense on there, and that was just wrong. So um, James A. Byard is one of the more uh, interesting and underappreciated, and of course forgotten men uh, in American political history, and the Byard family is that way as well. So I want to talk about this Byard family and, and how their principles and their beliefs could apply to American politics and statescraft today. And again, this is a chapter in Forgotten Conservatives in American History. I'm not going to go through the entire chapter because I want to whet your appetite, so you'll go out and get the book. Uh, hopefully subscribe at learntruehistory.com, and you'll get it that way. But nevertheless, you can still get the book uh, on Amazon. Uh, you can buy it through my website, brianmcclanahan.com. I'll send you an autographed copy. Uh, so it's, it's highly worth it. There's also a chapter in this book uh, on, Cly on uh, John C. Calhoun written by Clyde Wilson. And if uh, you know anything about uh, Clyde Wilson, you know that uh, uh, he is the greatest uh, Calhoun scholar living today. And so anytime you can get a chapter on, uh, on Calhoun written by Clyde Wilson, it's worth your time to get the book. But uh, I also wrote the chapter on the Byards and a number of others. I mean, this is a great book. There's all kinds of juicy material in here for you. But I want to focus on this Byard family and why they still are important to American history today. Uh, first of all, one of the things the Byards were highly skeptical of was this idea of progress. And James A. Byard, as he got older, after he retired from Congress, he wrote a number of letters that were really philosophical. And he looked at the world and he saw some things he didn't like. And he said this, quote, We fancy that humanity is advancing, 
because immense advances have been made in the physical sciences. But man the individual is the same impure being, the same creature of circumstance and mixture of good and evil as he has always been under varying types of civilization. And so these men didn't consider progress the way that the progressives of the 19th century did, that every day man is getting better in every way. Byron said that's, that's not true. Yeah, we may be making advancements in medicine or the physical sciences, but man is the same. Man is the same. And this is something that I often talk about in my history courses at the beginning of the semester when I talk about history. You know, what is it? Why do we study history? And one of the things that I often emphasize in that is that, you know, man is the same. And, we, we, you know, circumstances change, but man doesn't, same. Hum, man doesn't change. Human nature doesn't change. This is why the Greeks looked at history as cyclical rather than linear, because what goes around comes around. Man does similar things in similar situations. And so we fancy ourselves as getting better and all these things are making improvements and we're going to not make the same mistakes that man has made before because uh, we're smarter, we know better, we've progressed. I think the Greeks would say that's, that's hubris and that's folly because if you put yourself in similar situations, you're going to do similar things. And as we are cascading off this financial cliff in the United States, uh, I think that the buyers would say, yeah, Man is, is doing that. Man, man is going to do that because human nature doesn't change. And human nature has not changed. And the United States is no different than any other major empire in America, in, in not American, but world history. We're no different. We're no different than any other major empire, whether it's the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the British Empire, the Spanish Empire, the French Empire. Take your pick. Empires collapse under their own weight. Usually it's financial weight because they cannot sustain the extent of that empire indefinitely. And so Bayard is saying, look, I mean, we've got this situation where uh, we believe, and he's writing this around in the 1870s, and in the 1870s you were starting to really see progressivism kick up. Uh, and and uh, a lot of people thought progressivism was defeated by the 1890s. You know, uh, William Graham Sumner was saying that uh, progressivism was dead, essentially, but I think that uh, they were, it was just sleeping at that time. People had thought it had been discredited. Bayard certainly thought that um, progressivism was a foolhardy idea, but it came roaring back in the early 20th century, and it's never gone away. He also had this to say about what the idea of progress and what it was trying to do, and that was the French model of equality with a capital E. He said this, quote, my conviction, conviction looking at past history of the world is that nations die like men at different intervals of duration, and that what is called progress must be based on the moral culture of the people and not on merely intellectual excitement. The whole doctrine of bringing all men to equality in mental, moral, or physical endowments by so-called education is simply an absurdity. Equality of civil rights may be and is rational, but equality is not the law of nature. And so this gets into that idea of equality with a capital E. Uh, and this is something that um, we, we just, we use that term equality. Well, we're all equal. And for those that are in a situation where they feel inferior, that phrase is loaded because what it does is says, look, what you have to do is recognize that even if I may not be as talented as you, you have to recognize my equality. Now, again, what Jefferson meant by that equality 
was that all men, all free men, were equal under the law. All British subjects were equal in the rights of Englishmen. But that didn't mean that man was equal. In fact, Jefferson recognized very easily in his plan for a public education system in Virginia, which I talked about in the last podcast, that there were different varying levels of, of, of uh, equality, so to speak, in Virginia. Not everyone was equal. Some people were smarter than others, and we should harness those natural uh, aristocracy, that natural talent, and move it forward. So he recognized very easily, even among freemen, that not everyone was equal. And so that idea of equality is loaded, and we should avoid that term as much as possible, unless we're talking about equality under the law. The law is blind, uh, and so it should be blind. When someone violates the law, they should be prosecuted if the law is just and constitutional. Now, uh, the Bayards were all statesmen. They weren't politicians. And uh, when you look at the lineage of this family, you know, it goes all the way back to the 17th century, and they had a very large estate in Maryland called Bohemia Manor. Uh, but beyond that, uh, you know, they're, they're, one of their family members was um, a great uh, soldier during the American War for Independence. James A. Byard, the Younger's father-in-law, was Richard Bassett, uh, who, who uh, signed the, uh, the United States Constitution. Uh, I'm sorry, James A. Byard, the Elder's uh, father-in-law. Richard Bassett, who signed the United States Constitution. Uh, and so these guys were in, were in that founding generation, or that, at least that tradition, that founding tradition of statescraft. And so when James A. Byard was elected to the House of Representatives, he, he served from, from Delaware. He was the only member of the House. And he was there very early on in the uh, first Congresses. And he was actually the pivotal person in the election of Thomas Jefferson in 1800. In fact, he cast a deciding blank ballot, which gave Jefferson the presidency on the 36th ballot. It was Byard who swung the election in favor of Jefferson. And as Byard told it, James A. Byard the Elder, uh, he met with uh, John Nicholas, who was a Jefferson ally. And John Nicholas uh, swore that Thomas Jefferson, if elected, would not undo all of the Federalist uh, positions or legislation that had been established during the presidencies of George Washington and John Adams. And so with that assurance, namely, he wouldn't remove all the Federalists from office, uh, the patronage positions. With that assurance, James A. Byard cast that blank ballot. Now, years later, when Jefferson's uh, diary or memoirs were published, essentially, um, he wrote very disparaging things about James A. Byard the Elder. He essentially called him a liar, that this never happened that Jefferson made no such assurances. And so Byard's sons, Richard Byard and James A. Byard the Younger, took to the Senate floor twice to defend their father. And in the 1850s, they published all the documents. There were, desp there were depositions on this particular issue. They published all the documents relating to this, essentially showing that Jefferson was a liar, uh, that their father was telling the truth. And I, I actually believe the Byards in this particular case. Now, they had nothing to lose by this and not, really nothing to gain either uh, except vindicating their father's reputation from being attacked by Thomas Jefferson. Uh, James A. Byard was, um, was a very, the elder was a very uh, principled man. In fact, um, after he cast that deciding vote, he was offered a minister position and he declined it because he would have had a hefty salary and he didn't want anyone to think that he accepted that position at the pleasure of the person who was going to be president. 
he thought that looked very bad. It didn't reflect well on him because basically then it looked like he was just buying an office. And he said this at that point. He said, quote, My ambition shall never be gratified at the expense of a suspicion. I shall never lose sight of the motto of the great original of our name. And he's talking about the Chevalier de Bayard, the great, the knight beyond uh, fear and without reproach. Uh, this man would never be bought. And so the buyers looked at their name and said, this is our name. The, the Chevalier de Bayard, I mean, this is the guy that we are modeling our lives and our careers after. And so uh, he was not going to allow himself to be put into an office where people could think he bought it. Um, now, he was actually... Uh, he actually lost his seat in the House of Representatives to Caesar A. Rodney. And uh, he said that Rodney was more people-tick than he was. That's actually a quote that he, that he used. Um, now, after he lost, Bayard wrote this, uh, I am persuaded that the people cannot be reasoned out of their folly and that they must be left to feel the evils now generating before they will open their ears to anything said against their present opinions. So we said, look, I mean, the people made a decision, and it might be bad for them, might be good for them, but if it's bad, they're going to have to feel those evils first. And I think this is something, when you go back to 2008, a lot of people thought, you know, what's going to happen with the Obama administration? It's going to be bad. But uh, people had to feel it. Now, a lot of people like the Obama administration. Some people thought this is really great. But I think what's happening, and, and this is what when you have a, a free system of election, yeah, people are going to make bad decisions at times. They're going to make bad choices. And they have to know those choices are bad. They have to feel it, as Byard said, that this has to happen to them. Uh, I wrote a piece uh, years ago uh, for LewRockwell.com entitled Vote Obama. It was right after the Obama election, not long after it, right after Obama had taken office. And I said this could be great, actually, in some ways, because people could actually feel how bad this could get. You know, Obama was going to be such an ideologue that uh, things could get bad. And people had to feel that. They had to experience it. Uh, so that's often what you have to do when you have a free system. His son, James A. Byard the Younger, wrote this in 1863. He said, quote, The truth will out ultimately. I never mean to make any opinion here except a question which I believe is vital in principle. But when I do make those questions, I have no fears. Though they may be voted down by the majority of the hour, Though they may not be known at first, the great truths will not triumph with a little energy and a little perseverance. So he's saying, you know, we have to, we have to stand on principle. And people may not, may not like it. They may not think it's great at the time. But we have to stand on principle because eventually the truths will come out. Uh, his son, Thomas Francis Byard Sr., who served in the Senate, who was Secretary of State, who was Ambassador to Great Britain, Thomas Francis Byard Sr. said this, I am an opponent of the entire system which turns public offices into mere rewards for partisan services and results in the creation of a brood of tricky and evasive politicians where conscientious statesmen should be found. What a wonderful quote. And then he said, six years later, he said this, Unhappy is the nation from whose people is banished a belief in the disinterestedness of public service, which is naturally accomplished by broad and liberal views, which do not measure or test great purposes by constant reference to one small object, personal advantage or profit. This it is that makes mercenary politicians such unsafe leaders, 
and causes national interests so often to be led to the destruction by men of narrow understandings, incapable of taking any but mercenary and commercial views of questions of government policy. I mean, what, we need people like this in government today. He's saying we can't just take these very narrow views because this is going to cause major problems for the future. Uh, he's a real statesman. Someone who's not just looking at the issue, he's looking at the broad view. And he's looking he's not just looking at power. First of all, all the buyers in this particular period of time were not elected by the people when they went to the Senate. They were elected by the state legislature. And so uh, they viewed statesmanship differently. In fact, uh, James A. Byard once said that, uh, you know, if he had to run for election for Senate, the candle wouldn't be worth the wax. He wasn't going to do that. He wasn't going to go out and campaign. Campa- you didn't campaign. Uh, that's not something that statesmen did. They were simply elected because of who they were. And the Byards were those kind of men. In fact, uh, James A. Byard the Younger said this, in 1869, the imperial government of France, with its six million majority, affords ample illustration of the inefficiency of such a remedy, meaning universal suffrage in professional politicians, to secure liberty against the aggressions of power. So, uh, these men did not think that they should pursue office unless they were disinterested statesmen, men of principle. When it came to war and empire, the Bayards also had a very conservative, traditionally American conservative view of war and empire. Uh, Of course, James A. Bayard the Elder was in the Congress during uh, the War of 1812. He was actually one of the ministers appointed to France uh, to hammer out the Treaty of Ghent, and he died shortly after. Uh, But um, he, uh, he said this about the period leading up to the War of 1812. If we are to come out of the war as we enter into it, after having wasted the blood and treasure of the nation and loaded the country with debt and taxes, it would certainly be more rational to submit at once to the wrongs we endure. If we expect to extort any concession from Britain, we must be prepared for a long, obstinate, and bloody conflict. So he was saying, you know, maybe if we go into the war and we don't get anything out of it, but we wasted all this money and all these men, well, that's going to be a real problem. And he was right. Uh, now, I think eventually the United States received some concessions, but uh, the Treaty of Ghent was simply just a, a, pe- a, a ceasefire, you know, the Christmas Treaty, as it was called. As it was called. And so uh, a lot of people looked at that war as pointless. Uh, Bayard, Young, Bayard the Younger was in the Senate during the war between the states of the American Civil War, and he was opposed to it. He was opposed to the war. He was opposed to the Lincoln administration. He's one of those people that I think people need to pay more attention to, and this is why I wrote my dissertation on him. Uh, maybe one day I'll get that thing published. But um, he said that uh, you know the war was problematic, that it was a war of subjugation, of extermination, uh, and that it should be opposed. He was opposed to everything the Lincoln administration was doing, uh, and he thought the Lincoln was trouncing the Constitution, uh, and so he said several interesting things during the war. Uh, he wrote a letter to his son-in-law in October of 1861 after his son-in-law joined the Union Army. And this is what he said, quote, In embarking on this war, therefore, you enlist in a war for invasion of another people. If successful, it will devastate, if not exterminate, the southern people, and this is miscalled Union. 
If unsuccessful, the peaceful separation must be the result after myriads of lives have been sacrificed, thousands of homes made desolate, and property depreciated to an incalculable extent. Why in the name of humanity can we not let those states go? And then he said this later. Their intent, meaning the Republican Party, is the devastation and obliteration of the Southern people as a means of retaining power, and yet I doubt that the history of the world has ever, with the exception of the French reign of terror, shown so imbecile, so corrupt, and so vindictive rulers over any people as those which the country is now cursed. Uh, now, those are not politically correct and popular positions. And uh, Bayard has been ignored. I mean, I, I get books all the time, and I, and I read through books on this particular period, even books that talk about the Copperheads or talk about the opponents of the war, and nobody brings up James A. Byard. No one. Now, there is a, a uh, historian at a uh, school in Virginia. His name is uh, Jonathan White. And uh, he wrote a piece, I think for the New York Times, where he actually mentioned James A. Byard. And he mentioned one of, the, one of his uh, uh, letters uh, one of his, uh, that he had written. So obviously he had, he had actually done some research into James A. Byard. Um, I don't know if he read my dissertation or if he looked at what I had written. Uh, but um, he, because at the time I was the only one who had ever gone through this stuff. Uh, and when I, when I wrote this, you know, almost a decade ago. Um, so, uh, but he mentioned James A. Byard uh, because Byard is such a, an important link in this Copperhead movement in the in the, in the North. Uh, you know, Delaware did not secede. It was considered a Southern state by many people, uh, but it did not secede. Byard was actually in favor of secession, uh, but when uh, when Maryland didn't secede, Delaware couldn't go. Uh, now. Um, Thomas Francis Byard was around in the late 19th century, and that's when American imperialism was really kicking up. And he said several interesting things about American imperialism. First, in 1893, he wrote, Our great republic will perish if we embark upon an imperial system of acquisition of outlying dependencies. Well, that's true. And then he wrote this uh, about the Monroe Doctrine and American imperialism. He said, quote, our position is not that of an involuntary military force at the beck and call of any American state that may stand in need of it. We have not assumed to forbid European powers to settle their quarrels with American states by the use of force any more than we have hesitated to do so ourselves. The suggestion has lately been made in various quarters that it is a violation of the Monroe Doctrine for a European power to employ force against an American republic for the purpose of collecting debt or satisfying a pecuniary demand. There's nothing in President Monroe's declaration even remotely touching this subject. And so he was highly concerned that people thought the Monroe Doctrine meant that we would police the Western Hemisphere. This is exactly what Teddy Roosevelt did with it when he issued the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, so he was concerned, he was concerned that American imperialism would ruin the United States. And he was correct. Now, when it came to federalism, uh, the idea of a federal republic, that's actually what James A. Byard the Younger called it. Um, his father was, uh, was a federalist, but um, he, was, uh, he was interested in uh, this federal union. In fact, he called it that. Um, he was afraid of Jacobism, uh, and he was afraid of the French Revolution. But he did say things like this, quote, uh, this is James A. Byard the Elder. I'll talk about Younger in a minute. 
He said, quote, in 1803, I believe as the United States are one great commercial republic. And he called the federal constitution a federal compact. Um, but his son wrote a book on the constitution in 1833 entitled A Brief Exposition on the Con- of the Constitution of the United States. And in that book, which, again, is, is forgotten, it's one of these uh, commentaries on the Constitution that nobody focuses on, uh, and it, if I ever do my dissertation, I'll put that in there, uh, the entire book, because it's not long. Uh, but in this particular book, he, he mentioned that the uh, states had powers, had uh, rights that uh, could not be circumscribed by the general government. He, call, he talked about the Union as a federal compact, and so he had that view of the Constitution. Uh, and during the war, he talked about what the war would do to the Constitution. He believed it would create a consolidated uh, empire, uh, and he believed that this would be disastrous to the original Constitution. Uh, he wrote in 1833 that as we value our liberty and independence, we should cherish the Union, recollecting that upon its preservation depends the dignity, safety, and happiness of our country. Of course, as I say in the book, by Union, he meant the Federal Republic of the Founders, a Union his father fought to preserve in, in the 1800 election, and he defended in vain on the Senate floor during the 1860s. Now, his son was around during Reconstruction, and uh, he said some really interesting things, particularly when the 15th Amendment was up for debate. Uh, Byard thought the fifth, Thomas Francis Byard thought the 15th Amendment would destroy the Union as uh, ratified uh, by the original Constitution. And he said this, uh, The Honorable Senator declares that, that that which was a Republican form of government in 1787 is not such in, in 1870, that the lapse of time, the changes in the condition of the country have destroyed the definition and signification of those words which are older than the language in which we speak. Delaware, a Republican state before the United States had existed as a government that was a republic long before you had you had your confederation of republics, and forsooth. If this doctrine is to be attempted, then we shall have what? We shall have the states that made this union, the creators of the union, converted into mere creatures, to be molded and turned as language shall find itself more conveniently used by an accidental majority of Congress. Hallelujah. He was saying this in 1870. This is exactly what was going to happen. And so the Byards were very concerned about policies that were trending towards consolidation, policies that were creating an American empire, policies that were leading us down a road where statesmen could no longer be in the American government. Uh, James A. Byard, the elder, said uh, this near the time of his death. He said, quote, I am, however, but a looker-on in Vienna now, but I fancy that I can foresee ultimate results more clearly than many of the actors. There are other matters, such as the increase of large cities and their relative control over the rural population, with the vice of universal suffrage controlled by the common government and the democratization of the bar and the press, which make me anything but sanguine as to our future. And uh, he said this, Later, the Yankee school system is the problem. It may stimulate the brain, but ignores man's moral nature and produces discontent with our condition among the masses. 
God help the country in which the masses are merely stimulated and trained to act in combinations which are always, sooner or later, controlled by demagogues. That is our modern political system. He was saying this near his death, but that's what James A. Byard, the elder, I'm sorry, James A. Byard, the younger, contributed to American political history. And so this is why we should talk about the Byards. And again, the Tuckers, I think, of Virginia are a very important political family, again, often ignored. Uh, there have been some people that have written about them. You know, uh, Eugene Genovese has, uh, Mel Bradford has, uh, Clyde Wilson has. But uh, not many people have written about the Tuckers in their entirety, and not many people have written about the Byards. Uh, no one except me that I know of. Uh, and so these two families are so important to our understanding of real American government, of traditional American government. And if we ignore them, we do so at our own peril. So I would hope that you would go out and get Forgotten Conservatives. Uh, I, I use a lot of the quotes that I put in that particular book in this podcast, but there's other things I said about them in that chapter. And, of course, you also get chapters on John C. Calhoun, James Jackson of Georgia, uh, Mel Bradford. There's a chapter on Mel Bradford, a chapter on Sam Irvin written by yours truly, uh, and a number of others that I think the Limbergs of Minnesota. I did a podcast on the Limbergs of Minnesota. So there are so many interesting things in this book, uh, and it's a it's a fantastic, I think, in, in many ways, uh, a great work of political philosophy. And so uh, you should go out there and, and get it. Uh, if not, by subscribing at learntruehistory.com, you should go out and purchase a copy. You can do so, an autographed copy, through my website. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this uh, podcast. I'll see you next time on The Brian